following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. You would turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. Let's look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 this morning. I'll read the text and we'll roll. John writes, six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples... He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having had and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. We begin chapter 12 this morning with this, with this account that John gives us of one of the last events that took place in the life of Jesus before he enters Jerusalem for the very last time. As I mentioned to you last week, we, we've spent uh, 11 chapters now of study on the Gospel of John, looking at his life in ministry, a period of three years. And we spend the last 10 chapters looking at just the final week of his life. John zooms in in these last 10 chapters and gives us in great detail the events that took place on these days and we begin this morning looking in depth at that. We, we begin looking at what James Boyce calls the most momentous week in world history. I think he's right in that. There's a lot of weeks that have been important in the history of the world. There are a lot of events that have taken place that have been significant and important in the history of the world. But there are no weeks that are more significant than the week that we begin to study today. No weeks more significant that have had more impact, lasting, eternal impact than what took place and these six days that launch in chapter 12 of John's Gospel. And it all begins this last week. It all begins with this return to Bethany by Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, we didn't talk about the last few verses of chapter 11 last week. Um, we ran out of time. You guys didn't listen fast enough. So we uh, had to cut this out. But I, I want to give it to you just for a bit of context this morning. Uh, verses 54 through 57 of chapter 11 sort of make the transition and set the stage for us. It's right on the heels of the, the fallout from Jesus' healing of Lazarus, bringing him back from the dead. John tells us in verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So to wrap up what happened in chapter 11, you had Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We, we looked at that in depth, and it caused all sorts of stir in, in the surrounding area there in, the, in, in Bethany, but all the way into Jerusalem and all around, and it divided the crowds. We saw this last week. It, there, there were people who believed on him because of it, and there were people that were hardened in their unbelief because of what they saw. So people were either drawn to Jesus because of this, or they were absolutely repulsed by him and rejected him one way or the other. And we saw the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, are absolutely thrown into just sheer panic on the heels of this great miracle because people are believing in Jesus. He's done something undeniable. He's done something that no one has ever done. He's done something that's irrefutable. I mean, here's a man who was in the grave four days. He's now up. He's now walking around. He's now talking. He's now telling his story to other people. Um, And there's nothing that they can say uh, that can discredit the miracle. The miracle stands because Lazarus stands. And they don't know what to do about it. And so they're panicking. And in the midst of their panic, one man steps up, Caiaphas, the high priest, and he declares what is ultimately going to happen, that it's best. It's best, he says, for Jesus to be killed. It's best for him to be killed. He makes the case that it's actually best for everyone for him to be killed. And it's a case that's true, just not the way, just not the way Caiaphas meant it, right? We looked at that in depth. Caiaphas meant it one way. God meant it another. It is best that Jesus die. It's best for everyone. Because he dies for the sins of the world, ultimately. And he dies that we might have life. But in this vile man's heart, it's a plan for murder. And the religious leaders we see then are, are, are decided in their, in their decision to act on, in regards to Jesus. Their decision to kill him is set in stone at this point. They are going to murder Jesus. The question now is only when and where and how. And there's something ironic about that, isn't it? Something ironic about the fact that these people thought they could put to death permanently the one who has just shown that he has power over the grave. The one who's just raised someone from the dead, and these men think they have the power to kill him. But that's what ignorant unbelief is like. That's the nature of it. When faced with irrefutable evidence, this kind of unbelief just refuses to see it, and and it reacts in anger towards anyone who is able to see it. So they falsely believe that they can stop what's unstoppable. I'm not sure that I highlighted this last week. If I did, then um, listen to it again. I'm on drugs this morning. So, um, you know, I may repeat myself. Um, I, I just want you to think about just a moment. Tracking back through John's gospel, these religious leaders have been on a slippery slope. Some of them calling the slippery slope of anger that started early on in Jesus' ministry. And it ends up at this point of murder. And it's instructive for us to see the slippery slope because um, it's a slope that you and I can find ourselves on, I think, as well. You can just put the whole thing up there for us, uh, Ben. Um, If you remember early on in Jesus' ministry, when he first launches out, the religious leaders are in firm control of the religious landscape of their day. And so Jesus is just another guy. He's just another man out there preaching a different message, but he's no threat to them. So initially, they're just sort of apathetic toward him. He's just another guy, no big deal, no big threat. They're just kind of apathetic. But as as he continues on with his ministry and he begins to do things and people begin to listen and begin to believe, he becomes an irritant and their apathy turns into irritation. They start to get irritated with him because now he's just a thorn in their side. 
Someone who's, who's a distraction from what they're really about. And so their apathy turns into irritation. And the more this goes on, their irritation turns into outright anger because upon their irritation, they go out and begin to confront him. And we've seen that a few times. And they try to trap him and they try to trick him. They try to confront him. They try to expose him as a heretic. But every time they try to do that, what does he do? His wisdom goes on display, their ignorance is on display, and they walk away ashamed and embarrassed and exposed as the frauds that they are. And so as Jesus exposes them in their confrontations, their, their irritation now turns into humiliation and anger. And the longer this goes on, their anger turns into what? It turns into pure hatred, pure hatred for the man. And that hatred rises to a boiling point we saw in chapter 11 at the end of this Lazarus event. And that anger and that hatred boils to the point where they're ready to kill him. It's, it's murder. And that's a slippery slope of anger. That's where anger takes you, ultimately, if you allow yourself to see in it long enough. Uh, it starts out just with simple apathy and irritation. And that irritation, when, when festering long enough, turns into anger, a full-blown sort of an anger in our lives. And that anger, unresolved, uh, continues to, 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 to be fostered inside of our heart, inside of our soul. And if it's not brought to the cross of Jesus Christ and dealt with, that anger turns into pure hatred in our hearts. And that hatred can bring us to the point where we'd wish someone dead. And the only thing that might restrain us is the law or fear. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, anger is a serious thing. That when you're harboring anger in your heart, you might as well have murdered the person because it's the same thing. It leads to the same place. That's where anger takes us. And that's where it took these religious leaders. And I just want to highlight that because it's so easy uh, for us to harbor anger in our hearts and in our lives and not think where this is going to take us if we don't deal with it. And these religious leaders, it took them right to the end, to the point where they're ready to murder. They're ready to kill someone who's done absolutely nothing wrong. Simply because of anger, jealousy, and bitterness in their hearts. And so that's where we are at the end of chapter 11. And John records for us the next event. And this event is recorded to us uh, by the other gospel writers as well. Matthew and Mark record what takes place here at the beginning of chapter 12. Um, In Matthew 26 and Mark 14, uh, they record this, and they give us some other details that John doesn't include, so I'll pull those over uh, a little bit at a time as we work our way through it. Just another quick interpretive note. In Luke chapter 7, Luke records a similar story. I won't go into the details of this, but um, I, I don't believe that what Luke is recording in Luke chapter 7 is this same event. It has some similarities. There's a woman who anoints Jesus with oil broken out of an alabaster jar, uh, but there are enough significant differences in timing and in location and in the identity of the woman that it seems that it's a different event that's somewhat similar in some details. So don't let that trip you up as you're studying this event. Matthew in chapter 26, Mark in chapter 14, uh, I believe record exactly the same event that, that John is recording for us here in chapter 12. Okay, does that make sense? So don't let it trip you up if you get those things confused. It'll seem a bit odd if you do. So John goes on to tell us about this first event that happens here as Jesus makes his way back to Jerusalem. And he tells us the setting in verses 1 and 2. He says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Now, between the, uh, you need to know this, between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, some time has passed. And we don't know how much time exactly. We just know at the end of chapter 11, Jesus went where? He was in Bethany where the Lazarus event took place. And where did he go from there? Do you remember? 
Okay, to Ephraim, he went away. He went away from Jerusalem, another good 12, 15 miles away from Jerusalem into a a rural area. And why does it tell us he went away? Because the religious leaders had put out a hit on him, right? There was a bounty on his head. They they, they were... They were committed to killing him and had already put the word out. If you know where he is, let us know because we want him. And Jesus knows this. And he knows, as he said many times throughout this gospel, his time had not yet come. So he leaves. And he goes into a rural area. And he goes away from Jerusalem for a period of time. Possibly even for several weeks. We don't know. The other gospel writers do record some events that take place during this time frame. John doesn't choose to give those to us. But Jesus goes away into a more rural area, and he continues his ministry for a period of time. And then six days before the Passover, he comes back. That's where John tells us. He comes back. He left Jerusalem because his time had not yet come, and now he's heading back to Jerusalem because his time has now come. His time has come. It wasn't his time before all the times that they tried to kill him, but this time, the time is ripe, and he knows it. And so he turns his face back toward Jerusalem, and he makes his way back to the city, and he heads back there for the final time. And John tells us it's six days before the Passover. So this is probably the Saturday before Passover. Passover beginning on the following Friday and and flipping over into Saturday. So this is the Saturday before that, that these events take place. Saturday, these events take place. The next day, Sunday, is the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Are you tracking with me? Okay, good, because I'm not sure I am. But if you are, that's what matters here. Okay, so it's Saturday, and he comes to Bethany, um, and, and he comes there. So he's now moving back toward the city. He's moving back toward the danger, not away from it. He's coming back to Jerusalem. He's coming back to give his life. He's coming back to the cross. He's coming back to die. That's what he's coming back to do. But before he does that, he makes a stop in Bethany. And it's a beautiful scene that we see here in chapter 12. It's a beautiful Simple interlude before the bad stuff kicks off, if you will. Jesus knows what he's coming back to. He knows what's, what's facing him when he comes back to the city. He knows what these next six days are going to hold. But before all of it commences, he stops to enjoy one last dinner, one last time around the table, one last fellowship meal with the people that he loves the most, his dear friends in Bethany. How many of you showed up for the oyster roast last night? Yeah, how many of you ate oysters? You sick people. I don't know what's wrong with you. I hope you had a great time. You had fun, didn't you? It's a good time of fellowship. Yes. I hate that I missed that last night, but I know you had a good time. It's great to spend time with friends, fellow believers, and laugh and eat food and do the things you do around a table. Jesus enjoyed that kind of thing, too. He took one last time to do this before he goes to the cross in Bethany. I think he just wanted to... Encourage his heart. I think he just wanted that that little moment of joy and laughter and friendship and solidarity with the ones that he loved the most before uh, the the horrible things that were coming down the pipe this week ahead of him came. And so he goes to Bethany and he stops there. And John tells us that there's a dinner party that's given for him. Uh, Lazarus is mentioned and Mary and Martha are there. And uh, there's a table. He doesn't, John doesn't tell us exactly where this dinner takes place, but Mark t- tells us where it takes place. In Mark chapter 14, verse 3, Mark tells us while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. So this doesn't take place apparently at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. It takes place at the house of someone called Simon the leper. Now, probably not the best title for him because um, 
I mean, how would you like to go around with that as your nickname? You know, Simon the leper. Um, Simon must no longer be a leper because if he was still a leper, nobody would have dinner at his house. Um, so we should assume that Simon the leper is called Simon the leper. Simon is formerly one who had leprosy, most likely one who Jesus must have healed somewhere along the way. Um, who also, like Lazarus, being a, a, a clear recipient of the grace of Jesus Christ, is, is grateful and wants to honor Jesus for what he's done in his life. And so this man opens his home, and Lazarus is there, and Mary and Martha are there. And that had to be interesting company at the dinner table. You've got Jesus, and you've got a man who was a former leper, and you've got a man who was formerly dead. I mean, can you imagine the conversation around that table? What do they talk about? Hey, what was it like to have leprosy? Hey, what was it like to be dead? You know, I can only imagine. People must have had questions for those guys, right? Uh, but they were having a dinner. Interesting company. Dinner, the evening meal, slow, relaxing, long sort of a meal, lots of conversation. It's a, it's a celebration dinner. It's a thank you dinner. It's a dinner that John tells us is for Jesus. They've given it for him. They've, they've, they've had people come over, and they, they're celebrating what Christ has done. They're celebrating his goodness and his grace in their lives. He's celebrating what he did for Lazarus and that family. He's celebrating what he's done for Simon and his family. And they're honoring Christ. And Jesus had friends, and he spent time with them, and he enjoyed their company, and they enjoyed his And so that's the context. It's a dinner party. And Martha is there serving. What did we see Martha doing last time in chapter 11? She was also serving. Seems like every time we see Martha, she's serving. There is a notable difference this time. She's not complaining this time. Um, Which probably is a subtle note that indicates that she learned something before. This time she's serving with a joyful heart. That was her way of expressing love for Jesus. Mary's going to show her love in a different way, but Martha shows her love by serving. And that's one way that people often show their love for Christ, by serving him. Serving him with a joyful heart. And that seems to be what Martha's doing. Lazarus, we're told, is reclining at the table. Now, for us, we don't eat the way they did uh, at dinner parties. I imagine probably yesterday at the oyster roast, you sat around plastic tables and metal chairs and ate your oysters, right? And other stuff. That wasn't exactly how the dinner parties played out in the first century. Uh, they, people literally reclined at the table. They had low tables that were low to the ground and often long, sometimes U-shaped. And what they would do is they would sort of lay down, uh, propped up on their elbows, propped up on one elbow, you know, propping their body up on one elbow, the other arm able to reach and, you know, get food, feet away from the table. You picturing that with me? So if you're like looking at a bird's eye view, you'd see the table and you'd see people's heads toward the table and feet pointing outward. That makes sense, right? Who wants your feet up by the table? I don't know. Maybe you just like feet or something. I don't know. But in this, in this day, you know, feet were not the cleanest part of your body. When you figure out that everybody walked everywhere and they walked around in their sandals and dry, dusty area, you can imagine people's feet got dirty, right? And so when you went to someone's home, it was, it was customary that there'd be like a bucket of water or something near the home when you went over so that you could do what? Well, you, you know, you get your feet cleaned up before you came in the house. Um, that makes sense. Like probably in some of your homes when people come over, they take your shoes off right at the door to keep, you know, the dust and dirt and stuff from getting in. Anyway, you get the picture. So that's what's going on. And so uh, this is how people reclined at the table. So Lazarus is one of those who's laying down at the table, um, enjoying this meal and this conversation with Jesus. And in the midst of this dinner party, in the midst of this dinner party, something really remarkable happens that John records for us. Something that nobody would have anticipated. Something that would have been instantly 
a showstopper when it took place. Mary takes an action that nobody would have anticipated. And as she acts, we begin to see this beautiful picture of this woman's heart. Her heart just gets exposed for us uh, in, in, in what she does. Look at this, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary, sometime in the midst of this dinner, she goes and she gets an alabaster jar that's filled with this, what's called here, an expensive ointment of pure nard. And she brings it out. Nard is, because we don't, Talk about nard these days. It's an oil. It's an oil that's extracted from the the roots and the spikes of a nard plant that grew in the area of India and Tibet, nowhere near where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. It was an it was an exotic sort of a perfume. But a perfume is not really the best word for it. Ointment really isn't the best word for it either. It was probably like a like an oily substance, like a perfumed oil. Does that make sense? It wasn't like a paste or something like that. It was something you could pour, but it wasn't like perfume, like probably what you ladies and some of you men are wearing this morning. Not that kind of a thing. It was like an oil, a perfumed oil, maybe not quite as concentrated as what you spray on these days. But it's what she had. And it's a very rare, a very rare sort of a thing. Um, we're told that it was very pure. That is, it was concentrated. It wasn't watered down uh, with stuff that would uh, contaminate it. And she has a large quantity of it, about a pound, something like 11 ounces or so of this, of this scented oil she has. Uh, this is the kind of thing that was used for a couple of things. You could use it for what you would use perfume for today, just to make you smell good or to make the environment smell good. Um, but it was also used in funerals you, to anoint bodies. We talked about how this went down in first century when we talked about Lazarus dying. It didn't embalm bodies, but you did anoint them with spices and oils um, because pretty quickly bodies started to deteriorate and they stunk. So that was part of trying to hold back the stench. And it was also a way that you expressed love for somebody uh, that was in your family that had died. You anointed them with this. So it was used for, for any of those occasions. Um, but this was a very, very expensive thing that she had. Very expensive. We're told later uh, that the value of what she had was 300 denarii. 300 denarii. How many denarii is that? 300. That was a trick question. How many dollars is that? Come on, people. Don't you know your denarii? Um, a denarii, one denarii, is about a day's wage for a common laborer. So 300 denarii is, is approximately a year's wage for a common laborer. A full year's salary, if you will. So I don't know, what is a, a, maybe equivalent in our dollars, a full year's salary for a, a regular blue-collar sort of a worker? Twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 maybe in our days? I don't know, just guessing. But a full year's salary, I mean, you think in terms of a full entire year's worth of income to purchase this one jar of scented oil that she had. Very, very expensive, very, very rare, very, very valuable. Um, this was likely some sort of a family heirloom, some sort of a, 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 we don't know how she had it, we don't know why she had it. Um, but it was something that was very special to her. It was something very special to this family, and it was extravagantly, extravagantly expensive. And she takes this, and she brings it out in the middle of this dinner, and she walks over to Jesus, and she breaks this thing, and she 
John tells us, anoints his feet with it. The other gospel writers tell us she also anoints his head with it. But John focuses in here on the fact that she also anoints his feet. She pours this extravagantly expensive stuff on Jesus' feet. I mean, can you imagine in the middle of this dinner party, the shock when this woman brings out this... I mean, everybody would have known what it was. Everybody would have known how extravagant and expensive this stuff was. And in the middle of this party, she walks to where Jesus is reclining at the table, and she breaks this thing. And it instantly, if you didn't see it, you would have instantly done what? You would have smelled it, right? I mean, it would have definitely captured your attention. And everyone's jaw would have just dropped when she did this. They would have been shocked. And if it wasn't shocking enough that she's just poured out her most valuable asset on Jesus' feet, John tells us she does something else. He tells us she took down her hair, and she wipes his feet with her hair. This would have been borderline scandalous. If what she'd already done wasn't shocking enough, this would have been borderline scandalous. Women in the first century never took down their hair in the presence of men. You just didn't do it. You just didn't do that. But she did. She didn't care what the custom was. She didn't care what anyone thought at that moment. So she takes down her hair, which would have been the cleanest part of her body, and she begins to use it to wipe the oil off of Jesus' dusty feet. And I'm sure everyone in the room was speechless. What would you say in seeing this woman do something like this? It's as though she's saying in a a sort of a visible way, Jesus, I'm willing to take the cleanest, purest part of me, and if I can do that and somehow use it to magnify your beauty and your purity and your value, then I will gladly make my hair a rag to wash your feet. There's something incredibly humble about what she does. There's something extravagant about it. There's no other way to describe what she does other than humble, extravagant love. This woman's heart is overflowing with love for Jesus. And she tries to find the best way she can to express that to him. To, to, to take what's in her heart and make it known to him. How she feels about him. How valuable he is to her. How important he is to her. How highly she regards him. How exalted he is in her mind. It was a way of recognizing his value. It was a way for this woman of saying, Jesus, I want you to know and I want to show you in a visible way that you are far more valuable than my most expensive commodity. That compared to you, the most expensive thing that I own is worth pouring out. That's how important you are to me. That's how valuable you are to me. It was her way of expressing her love. It was her way of saying, Jesus, I love you more than anything in the world. I love you more than I love the most valuable asset that's in my home. I love you more than my wealth. I love you more than my possessions. I love you more than my greatest investment physically. In comparison to you, all these things are worthless. They're worth pouring out because I have you. It was, at the heart of it, an act of pure, absolute worship. That's what it was. 
It was this woman's way of saying, Jesus, I am humble before you, and I am nothing, and you are everything. You are infinitely valuable. You are infinitely worthy, and my love for you has no depth that I, that I, can, that I can express. And so I pour out my most valuable thing on you. And I take the best part of me and make it nothing to serve you. That is worship, isn't it? It's worship. Worship at its heart is an act of pure love from a heart that is overwhelmed with love for Jesus, that values him above everything else, that can't help but explode and express that in some way. It's what we hope happens when when people gather together in corporate environments like this on a given Sunday. We hope that that's what happens. We we try and we we try to create an environment that's conducive to that. We hope that when people come together and we focus on the word of God and we sing about the glory of Jesus, that that what happens at the result of that is worship, that our hearts are filled with love for him, that we recognize him as infinitely valuable, more worthy and more valuable than anything that we could possibly have in this earth and we could possibly own here, that our hearts would be filled to overflowing with a love for him that supersedes our love for anything else, and that the result of that would be just a heartfelt expression of worship, both in song and in praise and in heart and in study and in prayer, that says to him, Jesus, you're more valuable than anything to me. That's what we hope takes place when we gather, because that's what worship looks like. It's what Mary did that day. And I have to admit that when I look at my own life, my worship doesn't come anywhere near what Mary's looked like that day. It doesn't. I don't worship him like that. Do you? Does your heart overflow with a love for Jesus that supersedes your love for anything else? The kind of love that says, you know what, I take my most valuable asset and I would dump it on the dirt in order to express my love for him. That's what's going on in Mary's heart. It's a a beautiful picture that John exposes this woman's heart for us to see because it's worth us looking at, because it challenges our own hearts. Because I think in looking at her heart, the way John presents it for us, it helps me to see what my heart is not quite, but what it needs to be. And so we see this woman in this act, and it's beautiful. It's marvelous. We couldn't describe what it was actually like to have been there. But it's not just her heart that we get to see in this story, is it? See, the title of the sermon is Two Hearts Exposed, because there's another heart that gets exposed in the midst of this event. And it's not just Mary. Hers is beautiful. This other one is repulsive. And John wants us, I believe, to see the contrast. And so in verse 6... He gives us heart number two. He says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we contrast with Mary in this beautiful heart of worship, Judas, one of the twelve disciples. He's mentioned back in chapter 6. Back there, even John indicated to us that he's the one who would betray Jesus. And here, in chapter 12, we have the first words that 
we know of Judas speaking. He's mentioned quite a few times in the Bible, never in really positive terminology. As far as I know, some of the only things we ever hear him say, certainly the first thing we hear him say, is what he says right here at this event in response to what Mary has done, in response to seeing this beautiful, humbling act of worship. Judas can't believe what he saw. You've got to remember who this guy is. Let me give you a quick review. He's one of the original 12 apostles. You know that, right? He's one of Jesus' inner circle. He's one of his closest companions, one of his closest friends. And John tells us this morning that he wasn't just one of the 12, that he held an office among the apostles. Did you realize that? That Judas held an, he held an office. He was, the, he was the group treasurer. He was the treasurer. He carried the money bag or the money box, depending on how you translate that word. And that's fascinating to me on several levels, that Judas was the treasurer for the 12 apostles. Isn't that fascinating when you think about it? Because it tells me something about Judas. It tells me that everybody trusted him, right? You don't give the money bag to the guy that you're, you know, skeptical of, right? Who do you give the money bag to? Somebody you hope you trust, right? So the fact that they allowed this guy to, to carry the money tells us that they trusted him. And what's also fascinating to me about this is that we find out later in the story that Judas has been skimming out of the money bag all along, and Jesus had to know that, right? But he doesn't stop him. He lets it go on. How much how about that have been for Jesus? You know, some, some poor family comes and gives a donation to the disciples. I mean, they carried this money bag. It was all they had, and it was just to sustain them from one day to the next. And he knows when that poor woman puts her money in that Judas is skimming off the top, and he lets it go. He doesn't confront it, apparently. Oh, well. It's fascinating to me. I can't imagine what that must have been like for Jesus to have navigated with this man all this time. But he was one of the original 12. He was the treasurer. He was specifically called by Jesus in Mark chapter 3. We get the calling of the apostles. And right in the mix of that, we see Judas, Judas uh, I about said Judas Asparagus. That's not the right guy. That's a veggie tail, I think. Um, or it should be a veggie tail, shouldn't it? Judas Iscariot, not Judas Asparagus. Um, I'm so sorry. Um, But we see he's called, just like the other 11 are called. Jesus specifically calls this man. Just like he called Peter, he called Judas. Just like he called the rest of them, John and the others. He calls Judas specifically. He invites them, invites this man to be a part of his inner circle. He's called by Jesus. He's present at all the events that all the others are present for. Judas is there. He's there. He heard Jesus teach when Jesus taught. He heard all of the sermons. He was actively involved in the ministry of the Twelve in Matthew chapter 10. When Jesus calls his twelve disciples and he sends them out to do ministry in his name uh, two by two, he sends them out to heal diseases and to cast out demons. Judas is right in the mix, and he's, he's paired up with somebody else, and they go out and they do ministry for Jesus. He saw all the miracles. He participated in several of the miracles. He was in the boat on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus called the storm. He was right there passing out bread and loaves and fishes when Jesus multiplied miraculously that food to feed thousands of people. Judas was there for all of that. He saw all of it. He heard all of it. He participated in it all. But what you need to know about Judas is he was a lost man. He was lost. 
Back in John chapter 6, Jesus even says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? He says this to the group. And yet one of you is a devil. He was a lost man. In Acts chapter 1, verse 25, talking about Judas, it says, The place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. You know where his own place was? It's hell. That's what you're talking about in Acts chapter 1. It's where Judas went to his own place, to hell. He was a lost man who betrayed Jesus. That's who he was. And you know what? And he stands as a, as a, as a vivid, vivid reminder to all of us that it is, it is entirely possible, completely possible, to be very close to Jesus and to be very far from him at the same time. To be very close to a church, to be very close to religious things, to hear and know all of the right information, to, to have correct exposure to all of the miracles and the works of Jesus, and yet in the heart to reject it all. It's because somebody goes to church doesn't mean they know Christ. It's because somebody can quote you the Bible doesn't mean they're a Christian. It's because somebody talks the lingo and has a track record of attendance. It doesn't mean anything. Judas had all those things. And he was a devil. And his heart gets exposed right here, doesn't it? Right here in the midst of this beautiful act of worship, Judas doesn't join in in the worship. Here's what he says in verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Boy, it's a very pious objection, isn't it? I mean, it's very pious, right? I mean, you can see this on Judas's end. That's wasteful. We could have, we could have sold that. And we could have gotten a full year's worth of wages. Look at how many poor people we could have helped with that money. A full year's worth of wages could have helped a lot of poor people, couldn't it? Was Judas right? He is right. It has a sort of a superficial plausibility to it, what he says. And it's plausible enough that the other gospel writers tell us that the other apostles join in with saying, yeah, he's right. The problem is Judas' value system is off, isn't it? His value system is off. He's right in what he says. That money could have helped a lot of poor people. But he determines in his heart that selling the oil and helping the poor is a better use than what Mary's doing. And that's where he's wrong. And that's where Jesus is going to set him straight. You see, his scheme of values is completely different than Mary's, isn't it? To her, the value of that was nothing compared to the value of Jesus. And dumping that out in an extravagant uh, act of worship from her heart was well worth the experience and well worth the cost. But Judas looks at it and says, no, it's not. And their value systems are completely different because their hearts are different. Mary pours out a year's wage joyfully on Jesus. And Judas is going to sell him out for a fraction of that in just a few days. Two completely different hearts. We see Judas' motive, don't we? He's really concerned about the poor, right? He really loves poor people, this man. He's just got brokenhearted for the poor. That's, that's what's causing him to say this, right? He can't wait to get out there and help the poor. No, he's a thief. He's a thief who steals from the money bag. He couldn't care less about the poor. He cares only about himself. He's skimming off the top. And what's really going on in this man's heart is he's ticked off. Why is he ticked off? Because he's thinking... If we would have sold that and got a full year's worth of wages, how much could I have skimmed off the top of that? 
That's what he's thinking. That's what John's telling us about this man. That's what's going on in his heart. He looks at this thing that Mary does that's extravagant and beautiful and undescribable act of worship. And his response is, she's robbed me because I could have skimmed some money off of that. And he's ticked off. And he hides his vile displeasure behind a, a, a veil of piety. And he makes his evil look so spiritual. Doesn't he? It's amazing how good people who hang around Jesus can make their evil look with the things that they say and do. Really, really good at hiding evil behind a a veneer of religiosity. And that's what he did. He's thinking, Mary, we could have sold that. We could have helped the poor. I could have patted my pocket. And you've just wasted it. Judas's heart is not like Mary's heart, right? It's not. Her heart is filled with extravagant love for Jesus above her most valuable, her most valuable asset. It's filled with, with gratitude and joy and wonder and love. And it overflows in this extravagant act of worship. And his heart is filled with a selfish love for money far above any affection for Jesus. And it will cost this man his soul. The love of money has corrupted the heart of the apostle of Jesus. And it's sad. It's depressing to look at, isn't it? In front of this man stands the most valuable asset in the world, God in human flesh. And all he can think about is money, earthly money. Mary looks at Jesus and says he's more valuable than anything. Judas looks at the money bag and says, I just want some more of that. The Bible has a lot to say about money, and it has a lot to say about possessions. The Bible really regards those things both as, as neutral sorts of commodities. It doesn't really invest in money and possessions, either good or evil, in and of itself. It doesn't tell us money and possessions are good. It doesn't tell us that they're evil. It just tells us that they are. And it tells us that it's the use of them that becomes good or evil. It's how we use them that makes them one or the other. We can use our money and possessions, whatever God entrusts to us. We can use them for the good of others. We can use them to help other people and to invest in the kingdom and to do good things in the world around us. Or we can use them, as Judas intended to use them, to hoard for ourselves, to store up for ourselves. Or we can use them to promote outright evil. But like Jesus, we can be, excuse me, like Judas, we can be tempted to love our money and possessions too much, can't we? It's very, very seductive, that is, money and wealth and possessions, seductive, seductive. In our culture, particularly seductive because there's so much of it to be had. And there's a very real temptation, and we don't have time to track it this morning, but the New Testament lays this out for us in great detail, that there is great, great, great potential for temptation in the life of a believer when it comes to money and wealth and possessions. There is a great temptation for us to love those things too much, to pursue those things too much, to allow those things to capture too much of our heart, too much of our affection, too much of our attention, too much of our time, too much of our worship. That's exactly what happened to Judas. He was captivated with a love for money. 
We're warned about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what Paul warns Timothy. This young man, Paul's given him, he's given him a warning. He's talking to him about this issue in his life. And he says this, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we'll be what? Be content. But those who desire to be rich, there's a problem. You fall into temptation. There's a particular kind of temptation that comes to those who desire to be rich. Into a snare, he calls it. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, when Paul wrote this, he had to have been thinking about Judas, don't you think? Could you think of a better way to describe what we understand about Judas that John is telling us here in chapter 12? He is exactly the kind of person who had a love for money that became for him a great temptation and a snare. And it, and it birthed in him all sorts of harmful desires that literally plunged this man into ruin and destruction. And the last thing we see of this man is him hanging himself, committing suicide. That is what the love of money did to this apostle of Jesus. It ruined him. It rotted his soul. It rotted his heart. It condemned him to death. And it ultimately led to his own suicide. There's a great temptation that comes along with a desire to obtain wealth and riches. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have money. It doesn't say it's wrong to accumulate things and to have a a nice home and to have a good car to drive. It doesn't say that it's wrong to have an emergency fund in case your transmission goes out. It's not the money that's the problem, it's the love of it. It's the desire to hoard it to yourself. It's the desire to continue to pursue it with everything you've got. It's the desire to love it and to worship it as though it's the most important thing that captivates the heart and rots the soul. You want to know how much you love your money? Here's a simple diagnostic question. How do you react when you lose some of it? How easy is it to get it out of your hands? out of your bank accounts? How do you respond when some of it is taken from you or when someone asks you to give of it? Do you respond with a, in your heart with a desire to hoard it back to yourself and say no? Do you want to hang on to it? It might be a sign. Hebrews 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For Jesus has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Mary understood that, didn't she? She had no problem taking the most valuable thing she had and dumping it on Jesus' feet. Because you know what? She understood Jesus would never leave her and forsake her. And she was content with that. Judas was the opposite. If somebody that close to Jesus is not immune to the lure of wealth, not a single one of us in the room is immune to it either. Right? If somebody in Jesus' inner circle could be that corrupted and nobody know it. And you know what? Nobody knew it. Nobody knew this about Judas until the end. We're going to get to the end of this Gospel of John. And we're going to see right before the actual arrest and all of that of Jesus, they're going to be gathering in an upper room and they're going to be sharing a final last supper together. And at that table, Jesus is going to say, one of you is going to betray me. And you know what every one of those disciples is going to do? They're going to be going, 
Who is it? Is it me? They're not looking around the table and going, Judas, we knew it. They're looking. They don't know who it is. They don't know what's going on in this man's heart. And they're with him all the time. If somebody that close to Jesus can be that corrupt and nobody around him know it, maybe you can too. Maybe I can too. This inordinate love of money rotted this man's soul and it drove him to suicide, but it does not have to do that to you. It does not have to do that to you. Jesus speaks. Verses 7 and 8. We see these two hearts exposed in one time, don't we? We see this extravagant love in this heart that overflows in worship, and we see this extravagant greed overflowing in a repulsive, sort of a vile statement veiled in piety. And Jesus can't let this contrast go. He has to speak. He says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. That's another way of saying, Judas, shut up. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have, but you don't always have me. This was a rebuke. It was a rebuke to Judas who spoke and to the other disciples who were thinking the same thing and agreeing. Leave her alone. You let Mary do what she's doing. What she's doing is a beautiful thing. You get out of her way. Your thoughts are not right. Your feelings are not right. There's greed in your hearts. Keep it to yourself. Don't corrupt the pure thing that this dear woman is doing. He says so she can keep it for the day of my burial. We don't know how much Mary knew. We don't know how much she understood at this point, do we? Because John doesn't tell us. Did she know at this point that Jesus was going to die? Did she fully understand, like no one else did, that he was going to go to a cross and was going to die in just a few days? Perhaps she did. Maybe she had come to a realization of this. Maybe she did understand that Jesus was just about to die, and she wanted one last time to express her love to him and her gratitude to him while he was still alive. Maybe she understood those things, and maybe that was her motive. Or maybe she didn't. We don't know. Maybe she didn't know what was coming down the pipe. Maybe, like Caiaphas, she just did something, not knowing exactly what the full symbolism of it was. But Jesus understood the symbolism of it, and he exposed it. He made made it clear, didn't he? I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried. And what she's doing right now is a big symbol to all of you that that's what's about to happen. Look at it. Smell it. Know it. Leave her alone. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. Here in this house, at this dinner party, his body is anointed with this pure nard. And in just a few days, his body's going to be anointed again. His dead body. He says, The poor you always have, but you don't always have me. He's not disrespecting the poor. The ministry of Jesus was all about the poor and the outcast, wasn't it? He cared for the poor. He loved the poor. What Jesus is saying is, there's going to be plenty of time for helping the poor. You don't have much more time with me. You've only got a few more days. You let Mary alone. She doesn't have much more time to do what she's doing right now. I'm only with you for a few more days. I'm going away. And the opportunity to be with me, the opportunity to talk with me, the opportunity to see me, the opportunity to worship me in person in this way is about to come to an end. You know how it is when somebody dies. I'm around funerals a decent amount. And it's almost always when someone dies, particularly when they die suddenly, and you're talking with family members, 
almost always the conversation goes something like this. If I just known they were going to die, I, would have, I wish I had said this. Or I wish I'd had time to do that. Right? You think about those things that you didn't do that you wish you had done. And if you had known that they were going to die, you would have done. But you didn't know they were going to die, so you didn't. And Jesus is trying to keep, he's trying to keep saying, look, there's not much time left. I'm going to die. You let Mary do what she's going to do so she'll have no regrets when it's over. I'm not going to be with you much longer. And then Mark tells us in Mark chapter 14, verse 10, that this was it for Judas. This rebuke was it for Judas. Then Judas Iscariot, Mark says, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them to him. Him to them. Judas is infuriated that Jesus rebukes him and exposes his evil heart. And he marches out of that dinner and he goes straight where? To the religious leaders. To those who have a bounty on Jesus' head. And he goes there to betray Jesus. And the corruption of his soul leads him to sell out Jesus. And we see in this story that John gives us two hearts exposed. The heart of Mary, a heart of pure, extravagant love that overflows in worship. And the heart of Judas, someone very close to Jesus, very religious in his outward expression, very religious in his verbiage, the things that he says, the ministry that he does, but a vile, greedy, sinful, dead heart. And I think John means, and I think God means for us to see that contrast and then to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask the question, which heart looks most like mine? There are two extremes. Which one do I see most reflected in my heart? Does my heart overflow with love and worship for Jesus? Do I value him above my most valued possession? Would I give up the most valuable thing I have if I thought that I could give it up in such a way that it would honor him and show him to be glorious and pure and majestic and wonderful and the most important thing in my life? Would I gladly release it to show him how much I love him? Does my heart overflow in that kind of gratitude? Or does my heart look more like Judas? I want to latch on to the things that I have. I want to hold on to the things of the world. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll follow Jesus around. Yeah, I'll listen to what he has to say. Yes, I'll, I'll participate in the periphery. But in my heart, I know what I love most. It's me and the things of the world. I think John needs for us to examine ourselves this morning, and I hope you will, as I do. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the contrast is vivid. It's vivid almost to an unimaginable degree. We see a love that's hard to describe, a love that's so deep that it doesn't care what anyone thinks. It's willing to give up everything to exalt you, Lord Jesus. To show you how valuable you are. To show you how much love there is in the heart. To worship you above everything. And we see the depths of greed and corruption. And a filthy, vile, prideful, greedy heart. 
And Lord, I trust that as each of us look at our own selves this morning, we see reflections of our heart in probably both of these characters. In those moments, Lord, where we see worship and love and joy and gratitude for your grace in our lives and in our families, we, we praise you and we thank you for planting that there, for doing that work in us. But for those areas where our hearts look more like Judas, Lord, we pray for your forgiveness this morning. We pray that you would expose that to us so that we wouldn't hide it, so that we wouldn't pretend that it's not there, but that we would see it in all of its ugliness and that we would turn that over to you, confess it to you for what it is and be drawn to you in repentance. Lord, don't let the love of money and wealth rot our souls like it did that man Judas. Don't let it draw us into those kinds of temptations and desires that will drag us into a pit of worshiping things above you. Help us to release our stuff gladly and joyfully for your glory and your kingdom. Make our hearts like Mary's. Enliven our worship, O Lord, personally, privately, corporately Lord if there's some who don't know you this morning that through the example of Mary they would see you as infinitely valuable today they would see you Lord Jesus as God in flesh who came to die for them for their sin that they would be drawn to you this morning embrace you as their Lord and Savior repenting of their sins believing in you you make that work this morning for your glory we pray in Jesus name Amen. 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 Amen.